Well, good evening. I'm uh, Carla Hayden, CEO of Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we're delighted, really, truly delighted to welcome all of you here to our Central Library State Library Resource Center. This is a special, special edition of our Eddie and Sylvia Brown Lecture Series. One of the reasons why it's so special is that Mr. and Mrs. Brown are here. And another special reason uh, that this is a great occasion is that we have a person to introduce our guest tonight who is truly a friend of the library and a big supporter of the Pratt. So please welcome the representative, the honorable Congressman Elijah Cummings for the 7th District. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Carla. And I want to say to Carla Hayden and to the entire staff here at Ina Pratt, we thank you for what you do. I've said to uh, Dr. Hayden many times that um, when I look at the Smithsonian series of speakers that come in, you know, they charge usually $25, $30 for something like this. And she and the board and the staff have found a way to bring these kinds of events to us for free. Our uh, guest this evening is Mr. Eugene Robinson. And I am, I tell you, when I knew that he was coming, I said I would do everything in my power to be here. You know, we often hear um, one of our national stations talk about fair and balanced. And I wish that they could take some lectures from this gentleman as to what true fairness and balance is. And, but there's one other piece and what brilliance is all about. I, I have so much respect for his opinion. He and I, we run in into each other quite often when we're sitting in the green room. These are new terms for me. <laughs> He's an old hand at it. But we're sitting in the green room just chilling. Uh, before we go out on to the set, <laughs> there's another one, and uh, <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> it's a new vocabulary. And, um, and we've had many opportunities to talk. And, you know, there's some people you just want to hear what they have to say because you know that they have thought it through very carefully and they have filtered it uh, through a lot of, 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 of filters to come up with a very meaningful opinion about subjects. And I, every time I hear him, I, you know, I can, I can be writing something, and I look up and I hear his voice, I say I want to hear what he has to say. And he is a Pulitzer Prize winner. And as Eddie Brown said to a small group of us a few minutes ago, that is rare that we would have such a person in our presence. It is. And I'm not going to be much long. I just want you to know that in 1976, he began his journalism career at the Francisco Chronicle, where he covered the trial of publishing heiress Patty Hearst. Did you all know that? He joined the Washington Post in 1980 and uh, worked his way up through the ranks, starting as a city hall reporter. He then became assistant editor 
city editor and South America correspondent, London bureau chief, foreign editor, and most recently assistant managing editor, and he began writing opinion columns for the paper in 2005. Mr. Robinson appears frequently on MSNBC as a political analyst on shows such as Countdown with Keith Oberman, The Rachel Maddow Show, Hardball, and Chris Matthews. He's here tonight, and I'm not going to tell you anything about the book because that's his job. But he's here tonight to talk about his book, Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America. And I can tell you that there is no better or more appropriate time than for this subject to come up. This is the moment. And the timing could not be more perfect. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we are, and I want to thank you, Mr. Robinson, for just being you. If you were, did not exist, we'd have to invent you. <laughs> and, and I really mean that. Your opinion is so respected. And one of the things that I thought about as I was thinking about this introduction and why programs like this Dr. Hayden, are so important. You know, we, we go and we, we uh, cheer for the Ravens, and, and we look at our art museums, and we're excited about paintings and whatever. And the library brings life to life. It, it brings, uh, it, it is a part of our culture. It is a part of what makes our city the great city that it is. And when we can have a Pulitzer Prize winner like Mr. Eugene Robinson to come and spend some intimate moments with us so that we can share and have a little bit of back and forth. It is truly, truly, truly an honor. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to this stage Mr. Eugene Robinson. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Congressman, for that wonderful uh, overwhelming introduction. Uh, you do pretty well uh, before the cameras yourself, so um, uh, it, is, uh, it is just uh, a tremendous uh, honor and privilege to be here uh, at uh, the Pratt Library. Um, I, a lot of people don't know this, but my mother, um, Mrs. Louisa Robinson, who is uh, about to turn 89 years old and uh, lives where I grew up, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, her entire career was, uh, is, is there, uh, I'm here in Orangeburg out there? Okay. Um, she spent her career as uh, the head librarian at Claflin University in, uh, in Orangeburg. And so, um, so I know what being in a library is about. I grew up in a library and, uh, and so appreciate um, uh, all that the Pratt Library is doing all that uh, Eddie and Sylvia have, have done, although I do feel it's like you're being called out by the preacher in church, though, so I'm, so I'm not going to call you out anymore. Um, uh, the thing about it is they're here. <laughs> but um, um, so thank, and thanks to all of you for coming, and also thank you for giving me uh, an evening uh, off from my very intelligent and entertaining but somewhat dysfunctional family at MSNBC. Um, uh, because um, they're, they're usually interesting, they're not always easy. 
and um, uh, except for Rachel Maddow, who's a very nice person and very easy to talk to, you'd all, you'd all enjoy having a beer with her. Um, Keith Oberman, Chris Matthews, n- not so much. We, we appreciate them for what they do. <laughs> uh, uh, I am going um, to talk a little bit about uh, the book that I just did called Disintegration. Um, uh, book plug, I'll show it. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then would love to do a bit of... Uh, uh, question and answer and take your questions about uh, anything you'd like to talk about. But I do want to talk about the, the book. It just came out last week, and it, um, it, was, it was harder to do than I, than I thought it would be. And one reason it was was that my, um, the process of doing this book kept taking um, my reasoning, such as it is, to places where I didn't necessarily want it to go. Um, uh, and I kept reaching conclusions uh, and exploring possibilities that I didn't really want to necessarily want to explore. I was kind of... Uh, but that's kind of where it led me. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a couple of um, little passages from, from the book um, because they kind of explain how I got here. Um, This book is an exploration of the new social and demographic landscape in a disintegrated black America and the implications for the larger society. It grew out of a talk I gave several years ago, what was supposed to be a five-minute address to a group of black publishing executives. I had been thinking about black America and its increasing incoherence, at least for me, as a useful conceptual framework. It seemed to me that one size no no longer fit all. We could talk about the need to increase black academic achievement in the poorest neighborhoods of Atlanta and the need to increase black academic achievement in the comfortable suburb of Lithonia, for example, but the problems aren't the same and the solutions wouldn't necessarily be the same. We could pretend not to notice how distinctive African immigrants are from native-born black Americans, or we could try to understand those differences and put them in context. We could continue to accept the one-drop rule, mandating that anyone with any discernible African heritage was black, period, end of story, or we could remember that the rule was imposed on us in the context of slavery and Jim Crow and decide to look under the rug and see what we could find. We could not, it seemed to me, expect to convince anyone that all of black America still suffered equally from our unique history, not when black Americans were plainly visible in positions of of great power and influence. It was increasingly clear to me that there was no one black America, that there were several, and that we had to distinguish among them if we were to talk intelligently about African Americans in the 21st century. It was also clear to me that not everyone would immediately warm to this idea. Unity has always been a powerful weapon in African-American struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. Solidarity was essential. The privileged few could not and would not sell out the underprivileged many. Anything that divided us could only weaken us, and since others would surely try to split us apart, we could at least vow not to do their dirty work for them. 
I was raised to honor and, and cherish this, this ethic of African-American unity. Then again, that was some time ago. And so I decided to broach this touchy subject in my remarks to the publishing executives. What happened next was a complete surprise. My audience reacted immediately with such engagement and enthusiasm that my scheduled drive-by greeting turned into an animated, intense, hour-long dialogue. These black professionals, all members of the mainstream, middle class, didn't just want to hear my ideas about the disintegration of black America. They wanted to tell me about their own experiences and explain their own views. Several chimed in to reinforce the idea that, that a gap has opened between an educated middle-class black America and a poor, uneducated black America. Some said they saw the gap becoming even larger and lamented the growing separation. And you haven't mentioned the African immigrants, one listener offered. And from another, there are more people who are mixed race and they're causing us to redefine what it means to be black. So that's kind of how I arrived at a place that I hadn't anticipated paid it going and didn't really want to, didn't necessarily want to be there, but that's where I was. And, and so I tried to put some, some structure, um, to overlay my thinking with some structure. I poured through all the census data I could find, all the um, marketing studies, all the academic studies, and, and tried to see, okay, if you think there are, there's not one black America, there might be several, then what are they? And so I came up um, with, uh, with four. Um, it seemed to me, after looking at all the, at all the uh, available data and information, uh, that number one, there was a, there is a middle class majority. Uh, it is a majority of African Americans, uh, not as large a majority as we would like, but certainly more than 50%, probably closer to 60%, um, who have entered the middle class. Uh, now, we'll put caveats and asterisks by that statement because our purchase on the middle class is more tenuous than that of white Americans, um, in large part because of the gap in wealth um, uh, that there is between um, uh, whites and blacks in this country, and part also because of the kind of last-hired, first-fired syndrome. In fact, when we go into a recession, African Americans feel it more intensely, and, uh, and what we've certainly seen since the financial collapse uh, is a degree of not quite backsliding, but there are people who've kind of fallen out and fallen down. Um, but uh, I, I still believe that statement is generally true. The economy will, um, well, we have to see what happens in the elections the next couple of times, but let's assume the economy comes back at some point uh, and, and, and uh, we will at least get back to the kinds of levels of employment that we had eventually. And then I think um, that that basic thesis will hold true, that a pretty um, identifiable and solid majority of African Americans we will be able to classify as middle class. And I call that segment the mainstream. Um, there is a, a very large um, minority of African Americans, however, um, which my best 
guess was about a quarter, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but um, who did not climb that ladder into the middle class and for whom the prospects of being able to climb that ladder are arguably as as poor um, and unpromising as they have been uh, at any time in, in not just in the last 50 years, maybe going back 100 years. Uh, why? Because the rungs on that ladder are not there anymore. Um, so how do you climb a ladder with no rungs? How do you climb a ladder? Um, used to be if you were a person of limited education but, um, but strong determination, um, you came from a poor family, you could go down to the plant and get a job, a good union job at the plant that paid a good union wage that let you um, buy a house, raise your family, send your kids to college, and um, so they would have a better life than you did. And when, you, when the time came for you to retire, you had a lifetime pension from that good union job. Well, that sounds like a, uh, a Grimm's fairy tale at this point. Um, but that, that world, um, uh, I was going to say, is vanishing, but has vanished. Um, so how is the family to do what Michelle Obama, Obama's family did, for example? Because that's exactly what her father did. Um, uh, he pulled himself to work uh, every day, even after he had, um, uh, he had come down with uh, MS. He had a disability, but he went to work every day. He raised his kids, sent them off to, to Princeton and Harvard Law. And, and, um, uh, but those rungs are not there anymore. Those jobs are in China and Brazil and uh, um, the Philippines, but they're not here. Uh, and so um, there used to be a public school system that worked a lot better than the public school system does now. There used to be, um, and we can go through the entire litany of, of, uh, of ills that this segment um, faces. Uh, and I refer to them as the abandoned, simply because we don't even talk about them anymore. <laughs> In our national discourse, when is the last time uh, you've heard uh, a national politician uh, run on the issue of addressing uh, systematic ingrained poverty in the society, not just in, among African Americans, among Americans, because you could run on that in Appalachia, you could run on that in the South, uh, in many parts of the South. Um, but when's, when's the last time that has been a huge issue framed in those terms in the society? Um, it's been a long time. Um, <clears throat> I saw a couple of other uh, groups, um, smaller but but also very important. Um, there is, I believe, for the first time, a very numerically small but, but important group of African Americans who have obtained, um, who have attained wealth, power, or influence in this society that is Absolute. That is in. That is to a degree, and not just relative to other African Americans, not just relative to other minority communities, but relative to the whole country or relative to the whole world. And uh, I, I, everything I could um, uh, find uh, in, told me that it's really the first time 
that you could say that about um, any really significant number or group of African Americans. The chief among them, obviously, President Obama, the most powerful man in the world. But there are also people like Oprah Winfrey. There are also people like Richard Parsons, um, uh, who was the head of the uh, CEO of the, of the biggest entertainment uh, company, uh, um, uh, media and entertainment company in the world, and, and uh, then went on to become chairman of, of Citigroup when, when the first African-American president asked him to step into that role. So um, imagine a transaction like that. The, you know, the, the, the financial crisis hits. The, an African-American president needs a seasoned executive uh, to take the helm at, at, a, at a troubled bank that's trying to recover from this near collapse of the global financial system. And so he's able to turn to an African-American and say, can you step in and do this job? That, I mean, that's unimaginable um, uh, a few years ago, yet it happened. It happened. So I call this small group um, the, the transcendent group. And finally I saw an... Uh, a, um, a, a group that I put under the umbrella of, uh, of emergent, but there are actually two components of that emergent group. And one uh, is, uh, one consists of immigrants from, black immigrants from uh, the Caribbean and Africa, especially Africa, uh, and their sons and daughters. We have seen, because of changes in the immigration laws, we have seen uh, a wave of black immigration, uh, the likes of which this country really has not seen since the importation of slaves was outlawed in 1808. I mean, and I'm serious about that. It's, it's, um, uh, it used to be, and for most of the 20th century, it was darn near impossible for uh, very difficult for people of color to, to uh, immigrate to the United States, and certainly um, uh, very difficult for uh, uh, people from the African continent. Uh, it has become um, much more, much easier, and people have taken advantage of that. And so um, the group of African immigrants now arriving in the United States, that is the best educated group of immigrants arriving on these shores. They're better educated than the Asians. They're better edu educated than the Europeans, than the Latin Americans, than anybody. It's not well known, but it's true. Uh, and they, uh, they sometimes don't arrive with a whole lot of money, but they tend to arrive in intact families, uh, and they tend to have, again, uh, this education, so they know the importance of education. They know the process of education. And their sons and daughters uh, are doing extremely well uh, in, uh, in their schools. Uh, a few years ago, the Harvard scholar, uh, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., um, uh, of uh, Beer Summit fame, um, <laughs> remember, remember that? <laughs> um, uh, Skip Gates did a, um, and he would have acknowledged an unscientific study, but it was a, it was a survey. He and um, another Harvard professor, Lonnie Guineer, um, looked at the roster of entering black freshmen at Harvard for that year. And they went, they went down the list, and they looked at the names, and they saw that more than half the students had African surnames. 
And this is from a, um, a, a group that numerically is far is less than 10%, far uh, about 5% perhaps of the population. And so um, you can extrapolate from that that this is a group that is going to have a major impact on the society and, um, uh, and that may have lessons to teach, um, to teach us as well. Um, and then the other emergent group is, well, you know, it's difficult to remember, uh, but it was only in 1967 that in the case Loving versus Virginia, uh, the Supreme Court struck down all, all, law, all laws that outlawed what used to be called miscegenation. Um, that's how they used to say it down south where I live, miscegenation, uh, uh, interracial marriage, uh, interracial relationships. Now, obviously, those, all, um, uh, those relationships did, in fact, take place since the first African slaves arrived uh, in, in, uh, on these shores in the year 1619. I think, the, you know, the first interracial child was probably born in 1620. I don't know. But, um, so, I mean, we all know that, and we all have the experience of having, you know, my, my, the first book I wrote was called Coal to Cream, and that was um, a range of skin tones. That's the range of skin tones in my family. It's probably the range of skin tones in a lot of people's family, families in this audience. Um, uh, but um, 1967 Supreme Court decision um, plus just the 60s in general and the 70s and the 80s and, and, the, and the, the loosening of strictures that, that uh, created um, segregation um, uh, or that there were, were barriers on, um, uh, against interrelation, interracial relationships those kind of fell apart. And so there is a, a new and growing cohort of uh, biracial, multi, multiracial uh, people, uh, who, uh, men and women, who, generally speaking, self-identify as African-American, uh, but who, as President Obama said in the speech about race he gave in Philadelphia during the campaign, the first time he addressed the <laughs> Jeremiah Wright issue, you recall, um, uh, he said something that he later had to amend, but, but what, the, what he said was uh, he could no more cut um, the Reverend Wright loose than, uh, and, uh, and then he could um, do the same to his own white grandmother, uh, whom, whom he had heard, who he had heard say um, racially insensitive things in the past. Um, now, the president did subsequently cut Reverend Wright loose, but that was because Reverend Wright subsequently had more to say. And so, um, uh, but he never did cut his gram- grandmother loose, and, uh, and, 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 and nor would he. And, and the point he was making was that um, uh, he has a, a, a deep and, um, and, and committed and... Um, unambiguous uh, self-identification as a black man in America. I mean, that is what he is. That is who he is. He knows who he is. He went through a process that he talked about in his book, Dreams from My Father, of figuring out who he is, but he knows who he is. At the same time, he, his relationship to white America 
is a little different um, from that of some African Americans, or most African Americans, I think, probably different from mine, because you can't be quite as definitive. <laughs> you can't be quite as as uh, uh, um, as cut and dried uh, about some issues, about some kinds of language, about a lot of things, really, uh, as perhaps I could. And so that's just a, that's an interesting and and kind of growing segment. And here's what. Here's what I, I kind of make of all of this, and, and here's what I thought was kind of urgent about trying to do this book. Um, when I was a kid, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, you could have made um, generalizations about black America. You could have said it's, it's poorer, it's less educated, it's, it's this or that. One of the things you would have said, and you would have been absolutely right, was you could have said where we all live. Because at least where I grew up, we, had, we lived in segregated neighborhoods. There was nobody who was going to move to the white side of town. So we all lived uh, in, the, um, uh, in the black side of town. And, um, and that meant that my family, where you know, both my parents went to college and, and uh, uh, and, and, and then two doors down was my eighth grade teacher, uh, no, my sixth grade teacher, which was highly inconvenient, by the way, because if I did anything, um, it, was, it was all inconvenient because my teacher lived right down the street. The principal of my school was, had been my mother's best friend growing up. Um, so when I did something wrong, I got it at the school from my teacher, from the principal, from the, you know, on the way home, I would get it from three or four people, and then I would get it from my grandmother, and then my mother would get home. And I get it from her, but um, uh, but also, but in between lived um, a construction worker, uh, and down down the um, down a little further was um, Mr. Thomas, who played the organ in church, um, and lived by himself. And then there was um, uh, uh, Mr. Bailey, who was a shoemaker, and uh, his his wife, Miss Bailey, was a seamstress, and down the other way, it, it, was, we, it was an economically, uh, educationally, socially, and culturally diverse uh, community, um, rich and intertwined community within the context of segregation. Uh, and uh, that is one thing that has really um, uh, been lost. Uh, and. Um, it's one of the few things that we might even dare to lament about, um, about what we left behind when we left behind the bad old days, to which no one would return, obviously. Um, uh, we would, no one would ever turn back the clock to the way things used to be. But um, uh, what happened? Well, <clears throat> as African Americans had more options, uh, because of the Civil Rights Act, because of the Voting Rights Act, because of the Fair Housing Act, because of Loving versus Virginia, because of everything else, um, uh, and and as a punctuation mark in the cities, at least because of the riots in in, in the late '60s, uh, African Americans who had the the means and opportunity and ability um, moved away from the old communities. Um, uh, those communities uh, lost their vibrancy. They lost um, their um, uh, they lost a lot of their um, just a lot of their sheer population, but they lost a lot of, of, of what had, um, what had kept, kept them alive and, and, uh, 
and, uh, and the result was a kind of gradual and increasing concentration of poverty and dysfunction, uh, often not in the neighborhoods where it started, often swept out of those neighborhoods by the process of gentrification into more remote neighborhoods, over into the corner. In Washington, it's, people kept getting swept further east, further east, further east, out to uh, across the Anacostia River, further down, further east, and finally out, in, you know, um, down in far southeast and out into, um, into pockets of... Uh, of Prince George's County, and and uh, and meanwhile, uh, the traditional black heart around Howard University of uh, of, of Washington uh, has become much more diverse. It's it's vibrant again, but it's 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 not the vibrant black mecca that it once was. That my um, that my father and mother remembered from their visits to Washington. It's a vibrant, great neighborhood, but um, but it's not the center of that kind of community. And. Um, <clears throat> And, and, and the urgency to me was that nobody's talking about those, those people who are being abandoned by all these processes that are going on. Everybody's talking about the middle class, and we should talk about the middle class because we're in danger of you know, becoming a country of rich, rich and poor. But what about the poor, and what are we going to do about it um, what are we going to do about these people? Are we going to forget them and write them off for all time, or are we going to finish the business that we, we supposedly started years ago? And are we, as uh, the uh, African-American uh, middle class, as more um, um, transcendent class or whatever, how do we, uh, how do we make anything happen? How do we, um, our, our physical distance, we have increased physical distance from, from, um, from so many people who are left behind. We have uh, increased social and cultural distance from so many people left behind. And so I, this strikes me as a situation that will, um, will become worse rather before it becomes better. Uh, unless we recognize it and talk about it uh, and find ways to act on it. Uh, I'm afraid that, um, that too many people are, are simply being written off to uh, this sort of cycle and pattern of, of multi-generational um, poverty and dysfunction uh, that we seem not to have even the will anymore, much less the means to, uh, to really, really address. So... Um, that's what the book is about, and um, and that was kind of the journey I, I took to to get there. And if, if if is it a problem? If it's you know, it's a problem, it's an individual problem. Well, I I um, I can't I can't entirely agree with that because I I think um, individual and personal responsibility I I I'm, I fully support. Um, we are individually and personally responsible for what we for what we do. But, um, you know, if everybody's playing with a full deck of 52 cards, that's, that's, that's fine. But, if, but if, if some people have been dealt only half the cards, they're not going to do as well in the, in the game that we're playing. And there's certainly... Um, I really think we're in a different situation now, uh, given that 
you know, it's one thing just to yell people, yell at people, you have to do better, you have to do better. Uh, but if the tools with which they could do better literally are not present, I think um, that's a waste of breath, frankly. So, yeah. You can hold it. Yeah. We have just got finished 44 years of freebasing made available to the poor. Half the children, because the parents couldn't correct their child no longer, was put into foster homes and also boy centers and other things. So right now we got 22, 23, 24-year-olds on a gang mentality that they got from the movies and everything else. They also have an identity crisis because you got to look at it. 1819, Africa was divided into 52 like a deck of cards. Okay? Mm-hmm. By who? The kings and queens of Europe. Okay? We are all one, one family. We come from one great God. And this is the Milton pot right here in America supposed to prove that it can be done according to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Now, the Constitution states race and being and spirit. That means that we made in the image and likeness of one God. The other things other than that civil rights have delude and put us in a terrible predicament as a race of people. Because Afro-American wasn't approved by Bush. It takes the president, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the Supreme Court, and the president to sign to make a such a thing as the existence of Afro-American. What's okay. your question? Okay, no, okay, my no, question no, is you. the answer to this whole dilemma that we're going through. Okay. Okay, we've okay. been played by our government officials and other people. Hello, I'm Cynthia Phillips. I think that um, since we've become a global society, it's helpful to learn from other cultures and see what they've done and see if we could imitate that. One of the things I'm very, very impressed with were when the boat people came over in the 80s and the Asians came over in the 80s. They concentrated 20 years on nothing but nothing but education. Okay? And then on the other side, they, had, they asked for very small business loans. Okay, not mega loans, but like micro loans. And so the, the combination of the, me, the micro loans to start your own businesses and a, a total concentration on nothing but education for our kids is what got them, um, which moved them up in society and helped them to pull themselves up, not by their bootstraps because they had help from the government, but I can see that working for the African-American people, no matter where you come from, there's a total concentration for a full generation on nothing but education. Right, I, you know, I agree. Education, I think, is 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 the the key, perhaps, um, element of of any comprehensive um, strategy that you have. Uh, you got to get buy-in. You got to get you, you got to from the family. I write in write in a book about um, a program that um, uh, my former colleague Bill Raspberry um, of the Post. Uh, you know, he retired after winning a Pulitzer. Um, uh, long distinguished career um, he wanted to do something to give back to his um, uh, his hometown in Mississippi I think it's called Okalona um, Mississippi uh, so you know small town mostly black very poor uh, and so he did some research and decided that early childhood education was where he could have the biggest impact because if you get kids ready to ready to read and and you know you could really really kind of move the needle with that. So he starts doing that, uh, sets up a program to, to a nonprofit to do that. He then, he realizes, however, as he's setting up the program, that you can't, he couldn't just uh, go to the parents and say, okay, you need to read to your children an hour every night, because many of the parents were not able to do that 
or at all or to do it competently uh, on a level that would actually be, be helpful to the child. So he realized that he needed a center um, uh, where kids who were f- from families where they couldn't get that sort of help at home uh, could come and be read to uh, by volunteers who work for the Senate. Then he, um, he found that, in, of course, kids have to be able to concentrate in. So you have issues of nutrition. You have issues of, of, of you know, how much sleep they're getting. And he ended up adding a health component. So he has a weekly health clinic in the town. Uh, and fitness walks, because a lot of the families suffer from, you know, one of the big problems they have is obesity, uh, and, um, and not just the parents, but the children as well. So he's doing uh, uh, fitness walks and stuff like that. So this little thing that was supposed to be early childhood education, you know, has grown to be a big, a holistic, uh, multifaceted, uh, suite of programs that are making a that are making a real difference. I mean, it's 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 really good, but. He's a famous columnist who was able to um, uh, get the kind of attention he needed to get to win big foundation grants. Um, I mean, big, you know, up, up high six-figure foundation grants, uh, uh, and um, and can do that on a regular basis to keep this thing going. It's very expensive, so you know. But but you're right. Education's got to be in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello. I'm so glad to be here to see you. I idolize you. Well, <laughs> I watch you, you on that station. I even fuss at the television sometimes. But anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you answered part of my question. I became the new president of a little small town in Glen Burnie called Cedar Mars Hill. Mm-hmm. And one of the focus that I had for this year was education and the children. Mm-hmm. And so you just gave some of the suggestions that I was going to ask you. Uh, to get this program going. I've talked to some people that thought could help me. Mm-hmm. So you may give me some more suggestions of where to go. I've been to the schools. Mm-hmm. I've been to the Board of Education. And I don't know where else you might suggest I go to um, bring this into fruition. Yeah, well, anything education-related, you know, um, uh, you know, boy, the Gates Foundation, Gates Foundation has a nice big office in Washington. They're giving a lot of money to... Um, to support um, uh, school programs around the country. Um, uh, and so, um, uh, actually, the person I knew best there is not still there, but we, I, um, that's where I would, uh, one place I would go for sure. Do you find yourself as an author different from the many other authors of the African diaspora that we're being taught today in schools? Am I different from... Yeah, like how do you see yourself different from the many other authors that come up with differentiations of... Uh, point, yeah, <laughs> like we're being, yeah, like we're being taught about different things like this that you're coming across well, as an author, so I just want to... Well, I would it, hope every yeah. author would come, you know, with an individual um, uh, from, a, from a unique um, uh, point of view. Um, I guess one thing that might be different is that I'm at heart a journalist. Um, that's been my whole career. Uh, so I'm not a... Um, uh, what I write, I think, is... Um, I hope is fundamentally journalism. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, any pretensions to literature are, are only a bonus. But, uh, but, but the idea is to... Um, 
uh, my process is journalistic, which is to um, uh, to kind of identify the story that you want to investigate and then um, do a lot of reporting and then do a lot of analysis and try to um, uh, and then try to tell the story uh, in, you know that you learned from from that reporting and, and analysis and that's different from you know what a novelist would do or what a um, or, or what some essayist would do. Um, yeah. right, you said earlier we could ask any question. Yes. I want to ask you, how do you have a rational, realistic, factual discussion with Pat Buchanan on MSNBC? Well, who, who said it was rational? Who said it was realistic? And who said it was fact-based? Okay, One, I'll, I'll just mention two things. And the, and the first is this: first is not an excuse for Pat, um, because you scratch the surface too much. Uh, you know, and below the surface is some real some stuff that's really not right about Pat. Okay, <laughs> really, really not right. Um, <clears throat> But one of the great disappointments to me when I started um, uh, doing a lot for MSNBC was <clears throat> meeting Pat Buchanan and finding out that he was actually a very nice guy interpersonally. Um, uh, and that was a great disappointment because, boy, I was ready just to, you know, really dislike this guy, uh, in, in, you know, individually. And I still really dislike a lot. I mean, you know, there's a lot of racism in there. and There's a lot of anti-Semitism in there, and some of it, is really quite ugly, and he's got it under better control than he used to. But, but sometimes it come, it come, you know. So I came very close to losing it. I, my my grandmother, who lived ninety eight, always said, you know, just as well to laugh as to cry. You know, and she told me to try to keep cool. Um, and uh, but there was one time when he and I were talking about Sonia Sotomayor. And if you think Pat has a thing about black people, his thing about Latinos is, is worse and more acute at this point than anything he has about black people. I'm just being honest. Um, he has this thing about Anglo-American culture versus um, you know, other cultures and the supremacy of kind of the Anglo-American ethic or whatever. I don't know what it is, but, but anyhow, he's got this thing about being overrun by brown hordes. So it's like, okay, you black people, okay, but, the, but those, but them, you know, the Mexicans. And so he got himself so worked up one day that he was actually arguing, and he, it's not just he blurted it out, but he was actually trying to argue that Sarah Palin's educational credentials in history were superior to that of Sonia Sotomayor. Did you see that? Did anybody see that? Because I, I, I'm serious. I'm serious. He had gotten himself in, and so I said, as one would, Pat, come on, come on. Uh, you know, um, you know, uh, Princeton, uh, you know, this, is, this woman is brilliant, and Sarah Palin is, I mean, come on, let's be, let's be realistic. Argue your case, but let's be real. And no, he was insisting on it, and I just, I, I almost lost it. I just, I just came close to losing it, because. Uh, lose it? Okay, I'll lose it next time. <laughs> I'll lose it next time. Okay. Hmm? Okay, we have... Oh, no, no I'm, I'm being uh, helped here, and so okay. we, we've... But I'm sure we'll get to um, Two things. One, uh, the young lady who asked about the um, 
the comparison of using your book and mm -hmm. or actually comparing you to other authors. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually see using your book in a class, a course that I teach, and actually my students are here, uh, in diversity, social, and economic justice, um, which is a course that is being taught at Morgan State University in the School of Social Work. One of the reasons being we have to open the conversation between the groups. Yes. And as I look at, um, as I read portions of your book sitting here and seeing the, di the division, the conversation has to start somewhere. Exactly. And if we can start the conversation in, in the classrooms, if we can start the conversations with those uh, groups of people who are looking at working with the abandoned yes. groups, then we can begin to perhaps bring the groups closer. Um, well, you know, thank you. I mean, that has, this book just came out um, last Tuesday, so it's been a week. And the thing that has most encouraged me uh, about the reaction, not about, you know, how many, how, how many people are buying or whatever, it, it's just, it's doing what I had really hoped it would do, provoking a conversation. And I, and I think, you know, we got to talk about it before we can, you know, and, and before we can, can move forward. And I, I just think it's really important uh, to talk about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What I want to ask you is, who speaks for the president? Everybody laughs. Everybody, well, we all know that education, we all know that we need education and yeah. all that. Everybody laughs when you mention the Reverend Wright. Now, you have Rush Limbaugh, you have Glenn Beck, and Sarah Palin, and the rest of the Tea Party out there dissing the president. But the system made President Obama distance himself from the Reverend Wright, Jesse Jackson, uh, Minister Farrakhan. I mean, so who speaks for the president? He's running around trying to get the Democratic Party, and he shouldn't have to do that. That's what the congressman and senators are for. Why is he running around? They wanted a Democratic president. They have one. But now they don't have the backbone to back it. <laughs> um, well, well, I'm tempted to turn to... <laughs> however, 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 here is a congressman who has the backbone to back the president and who also happens to re represent a pretty safe Democratic district that likes President Obama. So um, there are a lot of members who don't have that luxury. Uh, well, you know, the reason the president is out there, the reason he was in Philadelphia on Sunday, uh, for example, trying to, trying to get a... By the way, somebody threw a book at him today. Well, we, we, yeah, but I, I heard about the book ep episode. There were reports that it was. Well, they threw. No, they threw. They, well, that's a bad comparison because they threw shoes at, at George Bush. So they did throw shoes at him. So that's, that's I mean. Um, but, you, I mean, your point is, sir, hold on. <laughs> Sir, let me answer. 
the reason the reason he's out there um, uh, trying to save Democrats uh, is that he's the best political weapon uh, the party's got in those in in some places and in other places he's not the best political weapon the Democratic Party's got and I mean it's either either you're going to take a pragmatic approach to trying to win these elections or stave off as many losses as possible or not if you're the Democratic Party. And uh, I was told um, by Governor Rendell of, of Pennsylvania a month ago, I, I asked him, is there any way that uh, the Democrat Sestak could beat the Republican Toomey for, um, for that open Senate seat? And he said, yeah, maybe if we can get President Obama to Philadelphia to, um, to, to, to motivate an increase uh, African-American turnout. Uh, and I said, anything else? He said, no. <laughs> um, so that's why he's in Philadelphia, and that's why he's speaking. Now, here's a basic, here to one basic point, because I have been extremely critical. I think the president's message machine um, has been the weakest part of his White House operation. I think... He has, um, and I think their failing is that they have allowed the opposition uh, every day, uh, just about, to, um, you know, the other side has been quicker on the draw to define the issue and define the language in which the issue is discussed. So we're not talking about, um, uh, you know, end-of-life health care. We're talking about death panels. We're not talking about... Uh, uh, Insuring 31 million uninsured Americans. We're talking about a big government takeover. Uh, we're, you know, they that the control of that language um, was extremely important, I think, in the past 20 months in the way the Republicans have been able uh, to gain the political ground they've gained. Uh, and and I do blame um, uh, the the White House message machine uh, and the Democratic Party's message message machine for being very slow. Uh, to realize what was happening to them, uh, and still, you know, they just don't get up early enough or something like that. I mean, now they're, they're, doing, they're doing better now. Uh, you know, when I wake up every morning, I got a raft of emails, talking points from the Democrats, just like the raft that I always have from the Republicans. But um, they still haven't quite got that, that mastery of the language, that, that, that turn, that twist of phrase uh, that I think the Republicans have down. I mean, they're good at it. We're going to do just one more Yes, your uh, book uh, brings to mind works by uh, Dr. William Julius Wilson, the uh, Harvard sociologist, and he's done a lot of work on that with books like The Truly Disadvantaged uh, mm -hmm. and More Than Just Race. And, and he talks about the, that it's always been poverty in the black community, but the left behind, the truly disadvantaged, seems to have a poverty of spirit, a poverty of uh, positive values, uh, even a ghetto mentality mm -hmm. that tends to be uh, one of the prevailing obstacles to the moving forward. I would be interested in your in your thoughts on on his work and and on that no, uh, theory his, there. His, you know, his work is recognized around the world, and I think, um, yeah, I think he's absolutely right. And I think yes, people um, uh, values are important. Um, obviously, if you don't value education, if you don't value um, Work if you don't value um, the the things that um, that that we think people really ought to value that are good for you know that really help people in societies advance, 
then you're not going to advance. Um, the question is, how do you inculcate those values? And, 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 you know, my view is that it is a very limited use to kind of stand up here and yell at people. It just doesn't seem to really get through that way. It, 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 people, I think, um, uh, need to be, uh, you, have to, you have to work with people, uh, not on them in a way, and, um, and, and it's a long-term project. Um, it's, that's, that comes from that thought comes from something that uh, um, Michael Lomax, the head of the United Negro College Fund, wrote after uh, the defeat of Adrian Fenty um, uh, in the D.C. mayoral primary, and um, he was talking about what lessons he drew regarding school reform, and uh, he said that uh, Fenty and Michelle Rhee what they failed to understand that it was that school reform is something you do with black people, not to black people. And they acted as if it were something you did to people. I, just, I don't think that works. I think um, uh, you know, you've got to work as hard as you can to get people to participate and to trust and to trust that the values that you're telling them about are going to work rather than the values that 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 they are getting by with in the world that they live in. Thank you for bringing the center of thought right here in Baltimore tonight. Thank you, Congressman Cummings. And thank you, Ms. Mr. Robinson. And he will be right outside to sign your books. Thank you for coming.